Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. The following program contains adult content and sexual themes. Viewer discretion is advised. And it contains murder. Lots and lots of murder. You stinking bastard. People tell me, hey, you're gonna go die and go to hell. At least I'm not blown. Time for 911, where's your emergency? Oh, this is Sandy. We're pretty one rock. Rock Pyramid Road. What's Send the problem? The police. Send the police. Hey guys, don't be in here, eh, mate? And I said, I'm not trying to be in here, eh, but the police are coming. One in the chest, one in the head. By Detective Sergeant Roger Rogerson. I was uh, branching out. That's when the cannibalism started, eating of the heart and uh, the arm muscle. Oh, oh we're now Carl Williams' hands for coffee table and just, and just pull it out of his backside. Carl Williams is a wobbly bottom little cher- cherub face, cherub face little boy who would, who, who would, whose, whose life would be. I harm someone each time I kill someone. To be an enormous amount. Of that. Especially at first, uh, enormous amount of uh, horror, guilt, remorse afterwards. But then that impulse to do it again would come back even stronger. Hi, I'm Barney Black. And I'm Tara Saraban. And we do Bloody Murder. We're a comedy true crime podcast focusing on some of the lesser known crime stories from Australia. And indeed around the globe. What will you be covering this week, Barney? I'm dying to know. I'm going to talk about Michelle Lewis and Kenny Harris, two unlikely best friends from the wrong side of the tracks. They had the good fortune to find each other and experience real happiness for the first time in their lives, only to be murdered. So how about you, Tara? What have you got? Well, I have a patron request from Marissa Sharples. It's William Devon Howell. He's the most prolific serial killer in Connecticut history. His seven known murders topped the Connecticut body count of serial killer Michael Ross, who we covered in episode 25. It's a dubious honour because it's a shit honour, but also um, Ross killed six women in Connecticut and two in New York, so he's kind of won this one on a technicality. Mm. Now, of course, this episode is brought to you by our wonderful, generous, original brilliant patrons oh they're very good looking too did did you did you say that if you'd like to become a patron go to our website for details bloodymurderpodcast.com so tara i think it's time we got murdery okay well william devon howell not to be confused with millionaire thurston howell the third on gilligan's island because they are two different people he was my favorite millionaire yeah yeah and like favorite fake one why was he your favorite millionaire I don't know. He, he was classy. <laughs> On and, Gilligan's Island. And he had a hot wife. 
Okay, so compared to all the trash whores on Gilligan's Island, he was a bit classy. Yeah, that's right. Oh, so I say those words in jest. Anyway, he was born on February 11th, 1970. Howell grew up in Hampton, Virginia, where he says he was raised by a good family in a good home. He said he was never molested and didn't kill animals when he was a little kid. Yeah, he wasn't in the McDonald triad, though. Did he... Did he- Well, he never mentioned bedwetting or fire starting, so he could have still been two-thirds of that. Well, you only need two of them. How many do you have, Tara? I don't have any, Mm. but sometimes I feel like... Wetting someone else's bed. Yeah. He spent his early 20s in and out of jail for drug-related crimes, motor vehicle infringements and probation violations. Howell later drifted up to Connecticut, where he was earning money mowing lawns and working odd jobs. In 2003, Howell was living in a blue 1985 Ford Econoline van, which he called the Murdermobile, for reasons. For reasons, yeah. It had two broken windows covered by plywood and a sign saying, Quality Lawn Service, call Devon, and his phone number. And free hugs and... Oh, free rapes and murders, as far as I can tell. Not only did he prefer to be called by his middle name, Devon, but he also had it tattooed on his bicep. Do you understand why people do that with their own names? No, I don't. I I really don't. Okay, so I've thought of two reasons why they might do it. Okay, so maybe they might forget who they are and it reminds them. Or they think they might die in a case of like a disfiguring kind of death and they want to be able to be easily recognised. Oh, there's probably a third reason. He's an incredible narcissist. I think that's probably more like it. Also, we have a Devon in our lives and quite frankly, he's awesome. So the name's spelt differently. Maybe that's what causes it. Isn't it a luncheon meat as well? Devon, yeah, that's with the O. Oh, okay. So Howell often parked the van in the lot of the Super Stop and Shop in Weathersfield. Howell was five foot nine and built like a brick shit house with a long, dirty blonde mullet and a beard. I've seen pictures of this guy. He looks like a penis with arms and legs. Yeah, like a really fucking brick like a, shit house a, penis. Like a like a chode. He's built like a fridge. Yeah. A fridge with eyes. Yeah, and his neck was as thick as most people's thighs. He had a violent temper, no regard for women, and a twisted sexual appetite. So, of course, he had a girlfriend at the time of the murders. Yeah, that's inexplicable, isn't it? Yeah, but they generally do. They usually have girlfriends. Yeah, Yeah, pretty much all the time. Society is so fucked at this point that some woman was like, yeah, you're better than my ex. I guess it's about compartmentalizing, you know. They can be different to different people. Well, well, Howell thinks he's a brilliant guy, but his girlfriend's daughter um, thought that he was quite great. I guess she wasn't there when the police came for all the domestic violence reports, though. Ooh. He rationalised strangling his seven victims as some kind of moral endeavour. As drug-addicted sex workers, he believed his victims were worthless objects and thought that he was doing society some kind of favour by killing them and preventing future thefts and petty crimes. Because we all know that theft and petty crime is so much worse than rape and murder, right? No, it isn't. No, it isn't. Also, he is a fucking hypocrite because he himself was partial to smoking crack and had several arrests for drug offences. 
So whatever kind of story he's telling himself about why he did this is just complete bullshit. So please don't take it seriously. Do what I say, don't um, do what I do. Well, isn't that what you tell your kids? (laughs) Yeah, sometimes. Yeah, well, someone's got to raise the men of the future. Yeah. Like many people, he sorted women into two categories, good girls and bad girls. He has said that the women that he met at bars or had as friends were not in any danger from him, but the drug-addicted sex workers that he picked up in his van were in terrible trouble because they were bad girls, because the world's black and white and we all should be judged by what some guy thinks of us. What's interesting about him is he didn't have a specific physical type. His victims ranged significantly in age and race. The only thing they had in common was the desperate situations they found themselves in due to their struggles with addiction, which made them vulnerable to predators like him. Oh, wow. It's awful. Howell said he controlled his impulse to rape and kill based on his work schedule the next day. If he had no lawns to mow in the morning, he was free to rape and torture his victims all night and into the next day. He would duct tape their mouths up so nobody could hear them scream. He also liked to look them straight in the eyes as he strangled them and watch as they took their last breaths. They were just like objects, he said. I used them for my pleasure and satisfaction and I killed them and justified it by saying the streets are cleaner. Oh, this guy's a nightmare, Tara. He is a nightmare. The justification's really interesting too. Really, are the streets cleaner? Well, we now have a serial killer on our hands. Yeah. How the fuck is that a cleaner street, may I ask? And these marginalised women, they become drug addicted for a reason, you know, things and their lives aren't going as planned. No one plans to be in that position. No, they don't. And then the sex work kind of comes off that because they need a quick buck. Yeah. None of this is okay. These people are still members of society and they deserve our respect. Everyone does. Yeah, damn straight. He believed himself to be a good guy with a bad habit. You know, like every now and then he sneaks a cheeseburger or smokes a cigarette. I guess he's just a little bit cheeky because he likes to strangle, rape for hours, torture and kill women. Just a bad habit. Yeah, I'm sorry, Devin, but your behaviour is what defines you. And this is disgusting behaviour. I know, but he's like a white guy. So he probably thinks his behaviour is defined by, I don't know, what he says. Uh, Well, partially, but I think most people's... Are defined by their behaviour. I completely get what you're saying. I just think that he's holding on to this archaic notion of being right because of his social stature. Yeah. It isn't right. It's completely wrong. It's abhorrent. I guess he's a little old-fashioned. All seven of his victims disappeared in 2003 and the cases remained unsolved for years. The law first started to catch up with him when Howell became a suspect in the disappearance of Nilsa Arismendi in April 2004. On July 31, 2003, a woman told police that her sister Nilsa had not been heard from for seven days, which was very unusual as she was normally in constant contact with her family. A mother of four, Nilsa was a heroin user and a sex worker who was living in a motel in Wethersfield with her boyfriend, Angel Sanchez. 
Being a convicted drug dealer, Angel was immediately a suspect in her disappearance, but was cleared after a lot of interrogation and passing a polygraph test. Well, they would have went on him too because he was the spouse too, you know. Oh, no, absolutely. They went there. They tried everything, but they realised it wasn't him. Yeah. Instead, he actually became a key witness, leading investigators to Howell. Angel told police at the time that he and Nilsa allowed Howell to stay overnight in their motel room and the three would smoke crack together. He told investigators that he last saw Nilsa at 2.30am on July 25th when she got into Howell's van at the stop and shop. Howell later said, She wanted a lift into Hartford. I grabbed her and raped her throughout the night and into the day. I killed her and threw her down a hill. Then he partially buried her body. On November 28, 2003, a North Carolina sheriff pulled over Howard for a motor vehicle violation while he was driving the blue van in Dare County. Weathersfield police convinced North Carolina authorities to hold Howell until they could get there and serve a warrant for violating probation in Connecticut. On the way back to Connecticut, Howell became curious as to why two Connecticut police officers had travelled 800 miles for a misdemeanour warrant. Yeah, I'm not curious at all. (laughs) No, it doesn't seem strange. They do it all the time. Weathersfield detective Robert DeRowan showed Howell a picture of Nilsa Arismendi. DeRowan said Howell appeared shocked and immediately stated, I don't want to speak to you without my attorney present. I want to exercise my right to remain silent. Well, it's interesting when it's a right and not because there's duct tape over your mouth, isn't it? That's a privilege. That's an absolute privilege. Meanwhile, police searched the van and discovered that several of the seat cushions had been removed, but blood from two people was found underneath some carpet. And there was a lot of DNA in there. DNA taken from Nilsa's family determined that one of the blood samples was 99% certain to have come from her. They also found six videotapes of Howell having bizarre sex with women, but the videos were shot in a way to ensure that their faces were not clearly visible. There are two women shown in a video, though, where you can kind of see their faces. This is available online. We don't know who they are. We don't know if they're missing. Oh, wow. Yeah. Because Nilsa's body had not yet been found at the time, Howell was charged with first-degree manslaughter. Confidential informant Thomas Rodriguez met Howell in the recreation centre at the Cheshire Correctional Institute. He said Howell told him he wanted a quick trial because he said he beat the shit out of her in the back of the van, broke her nose and threw her out of the van. He said he has to hurry up and rush the case because it's all circumstantial right now. He doesn't want there to be a body found. Rodriguez also said that Howell told him he fucking hated prostitutes, which is interesting because he frequented them. He didn't kill every sex worker that he went with. He just killed the ones that, I don't know, the mood struck him. Yeah. Just a good guy with a bad habit, right? Wrong. In January 2007, shortly after the trial began, Howell entered an Alford plea to first-degree manslaughter, 
meaning, as you would know, Barney, and our listeners probably do too, that he didn't admit to the crime, but he knew that the prosecution had enough evidence to get to, a conviction to on him. To get a conviction, yeah, that's right. At sentencing, Howell continued to insist that he did not kill Nilsa, arguing that the bloodstains were from a physical fight that Nilsa had in the van with her boyfriend. He also tried to get his Alfred plea thrown out, saying that he'd only entered the plea because his public defender had pressured him. Howell was sentenced to 15 years in prison for Nilsa's death. Just weeks later, human bones were found in a swampy wooded area behind the West Palms shopping plaza on Hartford Road in New Britain. The shopping plaza houses a subway restaurant, dance studio, liquor store and hair salon. Barney, it's actually the perfect place to eat a sandwich, have a dance, get pissed and then get a haircut. Wow, let's go there. We won't regret any of those decisions. The person who discovered the bones in a mass grave had been looking for a good hunting spot. The bones were later identified as belonging to Mary Jane Menard, Diane Kuzak and Joy Martinez. The area is wooded and marshy and is inaccessible by car, which delayed the investigation and the recovery of the victims. So he must have got out of his van and carried them there. Okay, so what he did was he had a spot like above the the sort of heel of that where he could shove them out and they'd roll down and then he'd go down and dig a shallow Uh, grave for them. But no, um, he wasn't really into um, physically doing a lot, so he mostly let gravity do the job for him. Uh, Okay. Scumbag Howell confessed his involvement in the murders to a cellmate. He called the burial site his garden and said the victims should have known they were going to die because of the lifestyles they led, which, by the way, is the same lifestyle that he led. Mm. I don't know why the hypocrisy bothers me so much when there's so much else to bother me, but just that layer on top makes me really furious. Hey, Tara, you're a balanced human. You should rage about this. Oh, I know, but the hypocrisy seems, I mean, it's not worse than the murders, but just like, oh, they deserved it because reasons, like, oh, oh, shut your fucking murderous rape hole, motherfucker. Yeah. 40-year-old Mary Jane Menard was a substance abuse counsellor from Waterbury. She'd gone from drug user to drug counsellor and back to drug user again. But her knowledge of being a drug user really helped her help others who were drug users at the time. But you know what? Mary Jane was trying to better her life, but she was really struggling. She fell back into it, but she helped a lot of people in between. She went missing from New Britain in October 2003 while her daughter was serving overseas in the military. He stripped away the youth from us and made me and my brother orphans, her daughter Tiffany Menard has said. Because it would. Yeah. She was um, 18 at the time. Oh, that can really ruin a person too. You know. Oh, look, it hasn't ruined her. You know what's crazy as well? I, I watched um, some like TV stuff, documentaries about it. Um, she looks exactly like her mum. Yeah, right. But she also said that for years afterwards, she would see someone in the street out the corner of her eye and be like, that's mum. And then she'd be like, no, it's not mum. It's not mum. It can't be. It's probably just a reflection in a shop window. Well, which actually, is... that would have worked because she looks so yeah. much like her mum. Mm, but, um, wow. I mean, you know, it would steal your youth. It would steal everything. That really harden you, you know. Yeah, um, she actually tried to commit suicide a couple of times as well, um, which, mm. you know what? <laughs> 
please reach out for help if you're in that situation. Mm. 55-year-old Diane Kuzak disappeared in mid-2003. Police had last had contact with her on July 9th during a landlord-tenant dispute. Diane, who had a substance abuse problem and several arrests for drug use, had been out of contact with her family for years and sadly had never been reported missing. Though her remains were found in 2007, she wasn't identified until 2011. Oh, wow. That's a long time. Oh, I know, but she she was actually one of the earliest identified. It it wasn't until about 2013 or 15 that most of the others got identified. Mm. 23-year-old Joy Martinez went missing on October 10th, 2003, but was not reported missing until March 29th, 2004. Her family became concerned when she didn't show up to her own birthday party. See, Barney, what happened was she and her mother had birthdays like around the same time and they had this yearly party which brought like all of the family together. Okay. Yeah, so it was actually like a big celebration every year for both their birthdays. So for her not to show up to that Is unheard of. Yeah, right. She mustn't be able to if she didn't because she would always be there. Mm-hmm. She was last spotted in her hometown of East Hartford, where she lived with her mother. In high school, Joy had been a track star, and at the time of her disappearance, she was unemployed and in the throes of drug addiction. Joy's mother, Maria, provided a sample of her DNA, her own DNA, which ultimately led investigators to identify Joy's body in 2013. After the discovery of the three women's bodies, something kept bringing Chief James Wardwell back to the woods. He said, I kept on going back, bringing back our investigators to search again and again. He was actually running the detective bureau for the New Britain Police Department at the time. So he thought there were more bodies there? Yeah, he said we were never satisfied that all the remains were found. Okay. The New Britain cops did not give up. Police methodically excavated the land, going down several feet below the surface, over three quarters of an acre, and they eventually discovered remains belonging to four more people. Oh, wow. Really? Four more people? Yeah. Cops already knew this was the work of a serial killer, and they put up a $150,000 reward to help find the perpetrator. Well, usually the word prolific is... Uh, uh, Throwing around like it ain't no thing. Well, normally it has positive connotations. No, um, not when we say it. No, not no, when we're when talking we about serial it, murderers. It's always no. the worst. Oh, no. So that $150,000 reward was actually the largest offered in Connecticut state history for a criminal investigation at the time. But unbeknownst to them, the state already had their killer in custody. He was in for that manslaughter. He Al- was. Alfred Plea. So more remains were discovered on April 28, 2015, and they were identified as Nilsa Arismendi, the woman that he's in jail for the manslaughter of. And it was not manslaughter. No, it was not. Janice Roberts, Marilyn Gonzalez, and Ruth Camellini. 26-year-old Marilyn Gonzalez was the mother of two daughters aged 7 and 11. She went missing in 2003 after she left her home in Waterbury. Her family made a statement that said, Today, Marilyn Gonzalez would be a grandmother to an eight-month-old little girl if Marilyn had not fallen victim to a serial murderer. She was a sister, a daughter and a mother. Marilyn has family who loves her and misses her. They all do. 
let no one ever assume because someone's down on their luck that they aren't part of other people who care for them, some kind of community where they're working to make things better. I'm rambling. I'm so sorry. That's okay. Uh, You know, I look at my my children and um, I can see my father in their in their faces really you know? um, oh wow just just certain little mannerisms and stuff like that and he never got to meet them and that just i think about that sometimes yeah you know? and, but for to lose to lose a parent like that in in such a horrible way uh, just, who, who, yeah. yeah who was young enough to be alive when sorry your dad died young it's not a matter of age but this person would have organically been there to see this. That's right. And they are not. And it's yeah. not because no one loved them. And it's not because they might have been addicted to something or doing dangerous stuff. Like, they're important to so many people. Yeah. And pretty much everyone is and no one's disposable and it's really not okay for them to be treated like that. Well, that's what life is, you know. You leave a trail and, uh, hmm. Vile sick prick Howell admitted to raping Marilyn all through the night and then going to a McDonald's drive through to get a fast food breakfast before strangling her to death. <sighs> the inclusion of McDonald's was actually part of his murder ritual. He said, I'd go through the Mickey D's drive through with a half-naked tied-up bitch in the back and told them if they made a sound it would be their last. None of them did. But he killed them anyway. This guy's really horrible, isn't he? Well, yeah, he's a sexual sadist. There's not a lot of nice ones. Uh. 44-year-old Janice Roberts, also known as Danny Lee Wisnat, was a transgender woman from New Britain who was last seen on June 18th, 2003, getting into Howell's blue van at the Stop and Shop. She was reported missing on June 24th. Howell later told an informant that he tried to have sex with Janice and... When realising that she was transgender, he strangled her to death. Janice's death was much quicker than the repeated rapes and torturous murders of the other women, but that sure as fuck doesn't make it okay. No, no, it doesn't. 29-year-old Melanie Ruth Camellini was a mother of two from Seymour who went missing on New Year's Day in 2003. She'd recently been living in Waterbury and was last seen in that area with two men. Melanie had struggled with drug addiction, like the others, for many years. She'd get arrested, get sober, relapse and get arrested again. She'd also regularly disappear for long periods of time. Her identity as one of the victims was announced on May 11, 2015, on what would have been her 42nd birthday. Oh, that's so sad. Yeah, this there's... there's so there's just nothing funny about any of this shit, no. do Howell said, I grabbed her by the throat. I raised a hammer and told her, all I want is sex. If you don't give me any trouble, you won't get hurt. Although she cooperated, he still hit her with a hammer and strangled her to death after raping her repeatedly. Mm, by the way, I don't buy this, you know, I'm, I'm sweeping the streets clean of Oh my bad God, girls. did anyone buy that for you, even half a fucking second? I, I, I don't buy it. You know what no. it is? He's he's targeting these vulnerable people because they can't fight back. Oh, he's, he's targeting them because they're the kind of people who are in such a desperate situation that they'll get in this fucking murder mobile. Yeah, that's right. And then he's trying to justify his actions he's in just, hindsight. He's making his murder easier by targeting these vulnerable women. 
And then he's trying to justify it because he thinks he can mansplain it to everyone and have it be okay. Yeah. Probably worked on some people too. Some people are sick in the head. Howell told a cellmate that there was a monster inside of him and described himself as a sick ripper, which led some of the press to call him the sick ripper. I'm not calling him that. That is way too cool sounding for this guy. And by the way, he was mostly a strangler. He is an opportunistic, predatory, dirtbag, hypocritical raper and murderer, and that's what I'm going to call him. Yeah, and before he strangled them, he beat the shit out of him. That's why yeah, the blood broke was their in, jaws, that's why broke the blood was in the car. Yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. in, the, in the van, yeah. I'm just a good guy with a bad habit. No, you're a piece of shit. You really are. He also told the inmate that he kept Melanie Camellini's body wrapped in plastic in his van for two weeks because it was too cold outside to bury her. He slept next to her body and called her corpse his baby. During Howell's talks with his cellmate, he also claimed that if he hadn't been caught, he was going to go cross-country and kill others. I don't doubt it. The investigation had a breakthrough when blood and DNA matching the missing women were found in Howell's van. There was a shit ton of DNA evidence. He pleaded guilty to the six murders to spare the victim's family's further emotional pain through a lengthy and drawn-out trial that would have taken several weeks, if not months, according to his lawyers. Look, he did actually plead guilty to these murders. So, you know what? I guess that's something. On November 17, 2017, Howell was sentenced to six consecutive life sentences, 360 years, after pleading guilty to the murders of Cusack, Martinez, Menard, Gonzalez and Camelini and Roberts. The death penalty was actually abolished by the Supreme Court in Connecticut in 2015. Otherwise, they would have fried his fucked up ass. Yeah, that's what they used to do, electric chair. Yeah, yeah, Michael Ross got put in it. Yeah. 47-year-old Howell cried and apologised to the victim's families during the hearing, saying he deserved the death penalty and his acts were monstrous, cowardly and selfish. Which is nice. I mean, he finally stopped saying he was right. Oh, yeah. He's, he's just being a pussy, though. You know, he's just got caught and he's throwing himself at the mercy yeah, of the court. Yeah, and he wants an opportunity then, to him. Yeah. yeah. He said, I know what awaits me, a slow, painful death in prison. He also had a big sook about his diabetes and possible limb amputation and organ failure in the future, saying, I hope that provides some comfort to each of the families. You know what, chump? It doesn't. No, it really doesn't. But I personally am cool with the fact that you're going to suffer. I can't even imagine how many people didn't get hurt because Howell was convicted of manslaughter in 2005, Weathersfield Police Chief James Citran said. The trouble is, it's unlikely he stopped... By the way, this is me talking. (laughs) It's unlikely he stopped killing after these seven people in 2003. It's far more likely that between 2003 and 2005, he kept right on killing and he just found a different dumping ground for their bodies. Well, it's pretty likely, Tara. It's a pattern of behaviour there. It's massively likely they're looking into it. Yeah. 360 years. Doesn't seem like enough. Mm, not not at all. Uh, also, okay, so seven people in six months, and then what, you stop? You haven't been arrested. Nothing's changed in your life. You just stop. Yeah. That doesn't happen. So I wouldn't be mm. surprised if down the track more, more victims are linked to him because... 
from the research I did, I'm pretty certain that wasn't all there yeah. was. They weren't the only women and that he killed. Hey, bye. Yes, Tara. What time is it? It's true crime nerd time. That's my favourite time of every day. True crime nerd time. True Crime Nerd Time is an opportunity for you, our listeners, to give us your recommendations for anything true crime related. We are so hungry for those. It can be a book, movie, TV series, documentary, graphic novel, song, or just about anything that has scratched your true crime itch. Like a tomato that looks like Ted Bundy. Are you itchy? You can record your voice, just do it on your phone, we'll play it, or write it, we'll read it out. Now, we've had a few sent in in the last few weeks. Thank you so much, listeners. And we will get to all of them. Oh, and keep them coming. We always want more of these. Regina from Pittsburgh has sent in this week's True Crime Nerd Time. It is entitled Torso, and it's a graphic novel. Ooh, cool. I know a lot of our listeners love that stuff. Torso is written by Brian Michael Bendis and Michael Andreco. Brian writes for Marvel, while Mark now writes for Wonder Woman 77 for DC. So they're very successful. That's right, and it's all about the investigation into the Cleveland Torso Murderer, also known as the Mad Butcher of Kingsbury Run. This serial killer focused on the poor and the dregs of society, including people of colour, LGBTQI and sex workers. The novel follows the investigation from before Elliot Ness was involved to how it consumes him and ultimately the defeat knowing that the killer will never be caught. They take historical photos and use them as backgrounds in panels and use newspaper references and biographical details to ensure the storyline is as accurate as possible. This sounds freaking amazing. It does, doesn't it? This is a great way to learn some more about the actual investigation of this case and also learn a little bit about the political climate at the time too. Oh yeah, history lesson. Mm. I can't recommend this one enough. P.S. If you want, I can write some more of these blurbs about other books and shows that I've found over the years. I seem to stumble upon lesser-known ones, charity shops. Please do! We want to hear more from you. Yeah, absolutely, Regina from Pittsburgh. Send them in. Yeah, bring it. And thank you so much for this one too. Yeah, this is a way for our our listeners to be part of this conversation. And we really want you to be part of the show. We have the Facebook group, which we call the Fam Bam, and that's awesome. So many great people in there. But also this is a chance for you guys to be part of the show because, well, you're why we do it and we want you to be involved. Indeed, Tara, indeed. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. So, Barney Black, I believe it's time for you to get murdery. It is, Tara. Um, I've done something a little bit different this week, so uh, I hope you like it. I'm dying to hear it. They were the most unlikely of mates, 
A couple of desperados, a pair of outcasts taunted and teased for their supposed shortcomings. This is a story of two best friends who were really dealt a bad hand in life. For a brief moment they found each other, but this is a podcast where the stories don't end well, and for these BFFs, sadly, this is the case. Michelle and Kenny had been given a second chance at life, only to have it cruelly snatched away. Michelle Coral Lewis was born in Queensland, Australia in 1967. The cheeky, tomboyish girl had been given up by her mother and passed between relatives throughout her life. You don't get to choose your family and Michelle's was a shitty one. Michelle's most recent guardian, her grandmother, died when she was 16. Then there was nobody left to take care of her and she was about to become a ward of the state. Fortunately for Michelle, Rockhampton in the 1980s was still a small enough town for word to get around when someone was in need. Adeline Salhouse, known as Dell, was known for her habit of taking broken birds under her wing. She was a mother not only to her own children, now adults, but to anyone who needed it. She was selling seedlings one day at a local market when a friend approached. The girl's been moved from pillar to post, the friend told Dell. Did she know anyone who might take her in? She always felt there were people out there that needed help, Dell's daughter Ruby told media. The mothering instinct in her was very strong. So Dell took Michelle in and for the first time in her life the teenager had a place that felt like home. They quickly became close. Michelle loved everything about her new home. The big backyard, the bedroom that was just for her, the clothes she was given and the friendship they shared. Oh wow, so it's the first time she had her own room. Yeah. Dell's heart was as big as an ocean. She didn't have much but she made sure her new teenage daughter had a room full of nice things. Michelle treasured her pretty room so much that she kept it immaculate, her clothes folded neatly in their drawers. Mum looked at her as a second daughter, Dell's daughter Ruby said. Right. Michelle could always go to her and talk. There were things that Michelle shared with Dell that she never told anybody. But Michelle wasn't the only one Dell took in. Ruby's son, Kenny, Dell's grandson, had decided it was time to get out of Tully, the small Queensland town where his family lived. Kenny, although brave and confident, felt isolated and alone in the tiny country town. He had no friends there and was ambitious to expand his horizons. The ever-generous Dell welcomed him with open arms. Kenny was three years younger than Michelle, and he too had had a rough time. He fought his own battles in life. Born with cerebral palsy, he had always been the target for bullies. He was paralysed in both right limbs and had one leg shorter than the other. It made walking difficult. He managed, but with a pronounced limp. Life had been cruel for Kenny. He had endured endless taunts in the schoolyard, and it was just as bad when he eventually entered the workforce. Yeah, that bullying shit never ends, does it? No, it really doesn't. Well, Tara, Kenny wanted to be a race driver. Oh, cool. He loved to tinker with engines, and he learnt to drive despite the difficulties. I think he set his sights too high, his mother Ruby told media. Ah, so she was prone to underestimating him? He could ride a bike and eventually was able to drive. His independence was really important to him and we knew we wouldn't always be there to take care of him, she said. Michelle and Kenny hit it off right away. Good! He couldn't care less about her past and she couldn't care less about his disability. I can already see them laughing on couches eating popcorn. Well, it's funny you should say that. They watched movies together (laughs) and toured the town's nightclubs once they were old enough to get in. They were fiercely protective of each other and did everything together. 
Oh, because you know what? The family you choose for yourself are often the best people you've ever met, right? They really are, Tara. They were like brother and sister, and Del cared for them like her own children. Oh, this is beautiful. They were an unlikely family, but for some reason it just worked. They were all happy to have found each other. When Kenny was 19, Michelle turned 21, and Del threw a huge party. They held it at the house, and Del stretched her tiny budget to make it a night to remember. You know, I've never really celebrated my birthday. Actually, this is the only birthday party I've ever had, Michelle told Del. I'm so glad she got to have that. When the guests left, Kenny took Michelle out nightclubbing in town. She is a lovely girl, a friendly, outgoing girl, uh, Ruby said. That's Del's daughter. I got the impression of a loving girl who just had a raw deal in life. I think she'd been told too often she wasn't good enough. Oh my God, that resonates so much with me. And I'm sure it does with so many other people too. Yeah. Michelle had tried her hand at a few different jobs, but like Kenny, loved to dabble in mechanics. By 1988, she'd landed a job that she loved. Her colleagues were surprised by her work ethic. It seemed this was Michelle's time to shine. On January 14, 1989, Michelle dressed in a pink tie-dyed singlet and a pair of shorts and got on her trusty Malvern Star, the BMX that took her everywhere. In 1989, I was totally wearing tie-dyed singlets and riding BMXs. BMXs were so sweet. Oh, they were the best bike you could get. Yeah, I had a sweet green BMX. I didn't have a real one. I had like a fake BMX, but it still had wheels and shit. (laughs) Yeah, you kind of need those. They don't work otherwise. She had a friend who lived nearby, only a few minutes' ride. The pair sat down to watch movies. At 10pm, as the credits rolled up the screen, the friend suggested they put on one more. But Michelle did not want to worry Del by arriving home late. The friend waved goodbye as Michelle pedalled away on her trusty BMX. Such a sweet bike. The ride from the friend's Stenlake Avenue home to Del's place on Alexandra Street was less than a mile. It would have taken her just minutes to pedal soundlessly past a few blocks of single-storey brick homes and a small park surrounded by low wooden fences. She should have been home in minutes, but she didn't make it home at all. Oh, God. Dale waited and waited before becoming frantic. She searched the streets of Rockhampton for her lost daughter. A devastated Kenny went to all the local night spots in case she decided to go out. They must have been in such a state of panic. But hours turned into days and days turned into weeks. Distraught Kenny became obsessed with finding her, turning up at search sites to watch police at work. They became suspicious. Perhaps his disability drew their attention. What are you doing here? They'd ask him. She's my mate, he'd say. They didn't know that she was like a sister to him, the one who accepted him no questions asked, the one that always stood up for him. Over time, Del became convinced something terrible had happened. My mother was most certain in her own mind that Michelle had been murdered and probably buried somewhere, Dell's daughter Ruby said. Well, it's probably true. Mum never really got over the loss of Michelle and neither did Kenny. Dell became convinced that a man she knew was behind Michelle's disappearance. The man she believed had been taking a little too much interest in the young woman. Detective Sergeant Anne Gumley, who spent years investigating Michelle's disappearance, recalls that police were aware of their suspicions and admits that they grilled him, but were never able to prove he was involved. 
I wonder if they suspected him, though. I mean, no, they're not allowed to say that, but I wonder. He was clear because he had a, a solid alibi. Michelle had had such a sad life as a young girl growing up, the retired detective said. She was lucky she survived as long as she did. She was a fairly well-adjusted girl by all accounts. Some detectives would come to believe serial killer and rapist Leonard John Fraser could be responsible for Michelle's disappearance. He is vile. Oh, he's a despicable man. Absolutely. I wouldn't even call him a man. I wouldn't call him a human. Yeah, there's a few people that have done podcasts on uh, Leonard John Fraser. Look them up. Mm. Um, yeah. In 1998 and 1999, Fraser had killed three women and a nine-year-old girl. Before that, he'd spent 20 of the preceding 22 years behind bars for raping women. Yeah, and by the way, rape sentences in this country are kind of light sometimes, so that's more than one rape. When police raided his house in Rockhampton, they found several ponytails severed from their owners. None of them matched his known victims. Oh my God, I really hope they're still checking them with every Jane Doe they find, though. He may have been a good fit. He was even known to have frequented the very road where Michelle was last seen, but prison records show Fraser was behind bars when Michelle disappeared. Detective Sergeant Ann Gumley stated the investigation of Michelle's disappearance was intense, but sadly fruitless. There are certain investigations you always remember, she said. I still remember her full name, Michelle Coral Lewis. I remember the house. I could drive you there. It wasn't extravagant. It was a homely place. Dell was probably the closest thing to a mother Michelle had ever had. Yeah. I don't think people realise it, but police officers do have feelings. You always think about the ones you didn't get. I spent a lot of time on that investigation, she said. And um, Tara, police interviewed hundreds of people in that investigation. But they didn't find the evidence to accuse anyone? Well, eventually, Detective Sergeant Ann Gumley was moved to another part of Queensland, and after seven years, she was asked to write a report for the coroner on Michelle's disappearance. It's kind of almost like the giving up report sometimes, isn't it? Yeah, would have been, yeah. It was probably one of the saddest things I've ever done, she said. I'd worked on a lot of fairly big jobs up in Rocky, but she was the one where I always said, if it ever came to light of what happened, I want to be the one to arrest the person involved. Amen. I need to have closure myself. If you find the bike, you find Michelle. No one's ever found the bike, have they? Yeah, the bike went missing with her. I know. The BMX. That's a sweet ride. It Uh, was a sweet ride. It was a fucking sweet girl too. Dale would go to her grave still grieving for the daughter she'd taken in. When she developed emphysema, she vowed to write Michelle's story. She wanted to write a book about the lost girl and the life she'd found. But she went downhill quickly and died before she had the chance. Kenny's heart was broken. He never got over losing his best mate. He would also die young. Kenny eventually moved home to Tully, taking a job managing a rural property. In 2003, four years after his best friend Michelle disappeared, Kenny was beaten to death by his employer. Oh, no fucking way! What?! His employer, Sean Dennis, had borrowed Kenny's car and the pair argued about it. It should have ended with an argument, but instead the argument ended Kenny's life when Dennis beat him to death. Okay, so hang on. He was born with cerebral palsy. He can't move the limbs on the right side of his body. 
there's no way, and by the way, he doesn't seem aggressive, but even if he was, there's no way he could be much of he a was, threat to somebody. He was on an invalid pension. He didn't have full use of his body. There's... Mm, okay, sorry, continue. Yeah, it's a sad story. Sean Danny Dennis, 41, was sentenced to life in prison after being found guilty of Kenny's murder. Dennis had told the court he had dumped the body in the Murray River after punching and bashing Kenny with a length of two-inch water pipe. His body was never found. Murray River moves quickly and is large, and it goes over a lot of area. It's very deep, too, in parts, yeah. Yeah, okay. So, Tara, in court documents on the case that I sourced, it read, He then concealed the body and provided false explanations for the whereabouts of Mr. Harris. That's Kenny Harris. Yeah. Before demonstrating remorse by contacting the police and making a full confession. In that confession, he complained of provocative conduct by Mr. Kenny Harris. Really? Provocative conduct? He didn't say it was threatening in any way, though, did he? Causing Mr. Dennis to subject him to what proved to be a lethal assault. Okay, no kind of conduct causes anyone to do that. So are we calling bullshit on this, Barney? Yeah, we are. Okay, good. Mr. Dennis denied having intended to kill, and it appears from questions the jury asked him that they were satisfied that Mr. Dennis had intended to cause Mr. Harris grievous bodily harm. Oh, so they thought that he had meant to do it. They, he, he meant to beat him up, but he didn't mean to kill him. Uh, fucking six of one, half a dozen of the other. Shit versus diarrhea, right? Yeah, well, it's um, it's not what the judge thought, thankfully. Justice Joan described the murders as vicious and cowardly and imposed a mandatory life sentence. Dennis was also jailed for a concurrent 18 months for interference with the body. Once the trial ended, the coroner issued a death certificate allowing the family to finally conduct a funeral service for Kenny. So that would have been two years after his murder. Um, they never, they never got Kenny's body to lay him to rest. No. And they never got Michelle's either. Oh my god. Sean Dennis issued a statement when he was sentenced that read, "I hope in time that Kenny Harris's family can accept my expressions of regret." No. <laughs> no. On January 13, 2018, Sean Dennis was up for parole. What? It was an audacious bid for freedom in defiance of Queensland's new no-body-no-parole laws. Which is a great law in my humble fucking opinion. Under the new no-body-no-parole laws, a prisoner can only be freed if the parole board decides they have made a good attempt to identify the victim's location. And yet in this case? Well... His parole was granted on March 21, 2018. So they must have thought that he did his best to try and uh, tell them where the body was. No comment. The case of Michelle Lewis is still open, but there are a few people left to remember Michelle and Kenny's short and sad lives. Can everyone who's listening now take a second to remember it? And I'm going to do that too because they sound like really fucking beautiful people. Her missing persons report is still current, and this is what it says. She was last seen January 14, 1989, in North Rockhampton. She has brown eyes, dark hair. She's 155 centimetres high with a slim build. She was wearing a pink tie-dyed singlet and a pair of shorts. Michelle was last seen leaving a friend's address in Rockhampton and riding a white and red BMX. She failed to return home. But she did have a home to go to. She did. 
for one of the first times in her life. Yeah, it's such a mixed bag that story, isn't it? I'm just so. Oh no, it's actually just devastating. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's it's so incredibly beautiful, um, Dell, Dell, and and how she was there for Michelle and and Kenny. Yeah. Yeah, they had those few short years of uh, of, of real happiness and. Uh, I know. They had that taken away from them after they had that second chance at life, you know? I know. um, Everything about this is the worst. Um, I mean, it's beautiful, though. It's devastating. Hmm. Well, Tara, we've done this 74 times now. I know. Um, uh, it It doesn't get any less emotional. In fact, I feel like it gets more emotional. Yeah, that one was a tough one. Oh my god! Um, but as I think, you know, it was a story that needed to be told. Yeah, look, I agree. Um, and Michelle and Kenny, I remember you. I'm going to remember them forever. Yeah, I'll put up some photos. Well, I really need uh, Ozzy as. Uh, what is that again? Ah, oh, funny you should ask. Um, Ozzy as a tales of criminal stupidity with a quintessentially Australian flavour. Would you like to hear one? I really would. That's good because there's not enough Ozzy as's in the world to make up for that. But I do have one at any involves dicks. Oh, yay! Cool. Alrighty, <laughs> just let me try and get my happy on. So, Barney, did you know that a ring spanner is normally used to tighten or loosen nuts and bolts? I did know that. I didn't. Anyway, some men find this confusing and instead they stick their dicks in it. Did you know that? Uh, What? Can you say that again? A ring spanner is normally used to tighten or loosen nuts or bolts. Some men find this confusing and instead they stick their dicks in it. Yeah, that's what I thought I heard. Now I'm intrigued. A Gold Coast man, which by the way, for our US listeners, is kind of similar to saying a Florida man. Yeah. A Gold Coast man recently did just that, but became stuck after his penis swelled up in the ring spanner and he was unable to remove it. I had to Google ring spanner to try and figure out how that works. I could show you one right now. No, well, no. I don't want you to take down your pants. It's not known if the man did it for sexual reasons or just got pissed and wanted to impress his mates, but either way, it did not end well. Nothing concerning penises ends well once an angle grinder gets involved, does it? I would expect it wouldn't. No, no. Surprisingly, Tweedhead's firefighters say it's not uncommon for them to be called to such a job where people leave it too late to ask for help. Senior firefighter Peter Sutherland, probably nicknamed Souther, said, It's really dangerous because inevitably people leave it too long to come see us because they're embarrassed. Or say, My wife just said to put butter on it, sleep on it, and it'll go down. But it never does. <laughs> Sutho went on to explain, the blood goes into the appendage, whether it's a finger or uh, whatever. A knob. Or a fucking dick. It just swells up and by the time you realise, it's too late. He then went on to give us a cautionary tale about how they get men's dicks free from their metal prisons. That's a sentence I've never heard before. Would you like to hear it again? I quite enjoyed it. (laughs) He said, 
We use a tiny angle grinder that's air operated and use measuring tape to protect the skin and slowly zip away at it while keeping water running on it so it doesn't get too hot. It's a pretty delicate operation, especially where it is. There's a lot of blood. So please, gentlemen listeners, heed Southo's warning and don't go fucking your toolkit, even if it is just for comedy reasons. No, but my toolkit's so hot. Just because you can doesn't mean you should. Uh, Well, that's good advice. Mic drop. Peace out. Peace out. So thanks for listening and thanks to our patrons. If you'd like to support us, visit our website. Or if you just want to buy us a drink, we like drinks, there's a PayPal donate button there too. I've been Barney Black. And I've been Tara Saraban. And we just did some bloody murder. Please don't forget to review us on iTunes. And of course, rate and subscribe. It really helps us. Join our fan bam, the Facebook group Bloody Murder podcast. And follow us on Twitter and Snapchat and Insta. Check out our website, bloodymurderpodcast.com, for news galleries, more episodes and merchandise. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back soon. Goodbye and adios. And keep kicking against the pricks. I like that you said last week that you have to, you want to kick more pricks and you want to be a centipede so you've got so many more shoes. I don't need more Clothes for dogs. We need bloody murder clothes for dogs. Oh, okay, so we're going to use Pop Pop as the model because we think she's more charismatic than anyone else we know. So we're going to get a bunch of bloody murder t-shirts and Singlets, yeah. Yeah, with all of our logos on it, and we're gonna like get it to model. I've got her to walk on her hind legs a lot. I go up, 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 and she does it. It's amazing. Yeah, right. Okay. Yeah, so close let's... for dogs. No, but they're gonna be close for us. We're just gonna get a dog to model them because dogs are more charismatic. I would than like humans. to see a three-piece suit on a dog. They had, they had the intercom on in the room, and they kept lying that it wasn't on, and they were using sonic pressure on my head since 1997. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.